the Jodcast, crammed with delicious astrophysics, with Stuart Lowe, Tim O'Brien, and Nick Rattenbury. The Jodcast, February 2009 Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. With me right now is Stuart Lowe. Hi Nick, hi everyone. And in the show this time, we hear about old primitive dust. We answer your questions in Ask an Astronomer. But first, before that, let's talk about the video that we took down at the Royal Society. Stuart. Yes, before Christmas, those of you who are paying attention on the Twitter feed may have noticed that we went to the Royal Society in London, where we had special access to film Newton's Principia which is one of the original manuscripts that Newton wrote about his famous laws of gravitation and motion. And it was very exciting. Yes, it was absolutely fantastic. We were shown the Principia by the head of the library services at the Royal Society, Keith Moore. So thank you very, very much indeed to him. We are indebted to him for allowing us to film and handle the, the Principia, one of the more valuable books in their collection. Plus, also, we got to see Newton's death mask and even a lock of his hair. Plus, also, the first Newtonian telescope, the quintessential original Newtonian telescope, Newton's very own telescope. And I have to say about Newton's first telescope that the optics aren't very good. I tried having a look through, and it, it really, you wouldn't want to look at the night sky with that. Not now. <laughs> Well, it is something a bit of an antique, really, isn't it? So I think we'll we'll let it off the optics <laughs> quality for now. So do please go check out the video that we have made of Newton's Principia down at the Royal Society London. It's a good one. It's available now on the Jodcast website. Just go to the homepage. Do remember to uh, shift, refresh the page if you've got it cached, because quite a few people have complained that the web page doesn't seem to be any different from month on month. Do make sure that you force a new refresh on your web browser to make sure that it downloads the latest front page and you will see a new image showing the video plus also the show. Now, moving on, Nick caught up with Professor Albert Zilstra of the Jodlebank Centre for Astrophysics to find out about primitive dust. Okay, we're joined now by Jodrell Bank Observatory's very own Dr. Albert Zalstra talking about some exciting new research which he has been leading recently. Albert, your research has been into old dust. Tell us a bit about old dust. It's actually the dust itself is not old. The dust was newly made, but it's similar to dust um, that we expect to see in the early universe. And so for the first time we've seen dust form in environments that are very similar to those that uh, were around when the galaxies themselves first formed. All right. Now, when we talk about dust, we being astronomers, what do we mean by dust? Is it the same sort of dust that I sweep out from the corner of uh, my my living room, or is it something else? A little bit of the dust in your living room might be the same dust. As a little bit of the dust in space actually makes it to the atmosphere, falls down, and collects down here. It's only a tiny fraction. But yes, some of the dust will have made it uh, into your room. The stuff that dust is made of, it's, it's very small grains, and it's, um, it's a bit silicate, sand on the beach. Uh, some of it is like soot, carbon dust, but the particles are really very, very small. We compare it uh, mostly to cigar smoke. Um, particles too small to see, uh, but together they're almost completely opaque. You can't see through cigar smoke. If someone smokes a cigar in the room, uh, the room just disappears from view. Dust in space is very much like that. 
Okay, so the dust that you have found, as you mentioned, is newly made, but it is made in conditions which are similar to that close to the beginning of our universe in the Big Bang. What exactly are those conditions? Where did you find this dust? We found the dust in galaxy uh, near to our galaxy. Uh, the sculpted galaxy is in satellite to our galaxy, but it's a very old system and a very, what we call, metal-poor system. I mean, most of the material in space is made of hydrogen and helium, and a little bit is made about more interesting things like carbon and oxygen and silicate. Now, those ele- more interesting elements were made by and large by stars uh, after the universe itself first formed. They weren't there in the beginning. Now, in the early universe, there would have been very little of those elements, only a tiny amount of carbon, oxygen, because they still had to be made by stars. Now, this galaxy is peculiar in the sense that it has metallicities, abundances of those elements, which are not dissimilar from those in the early universe. And so they're really the most metal-poor regions that we've yet studied. Does this suggest, then, that the galaxies themselves are very, very old? They formed very close to the beginning of the universe. Part of this galaxy will have, yes. It is a very old system, and we believe it as old as the oldest stars in our galaxy. Not the entire system. Small galaxies only have few stars in them, and so they only produce a little carbon oxygen at a time, and so they stay in their uh, pristine conditions for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. And so some of the stars, including the star that we actually observed, probably were made some at some later time say, in the past five to ten billion years. All right, so you've observed a a single star. What sort of star was it? It's a star that originally was very much like our sun. Um, When our sun dies, it will uh, first go through a phase where it gets very, very large, a red giant. Then the outer atmosphere, the shell of the star, will dispel into space, and the core will remain behind as a dying white dwarf. Now, what we've seen is a star in this galaxy that's going through the same phase. It is shedding a lot of its uh, shell. Um, in fact, the, the mass loss is so high that within about 100,000 years, there's very little left. The star just evaporates as you're watching. The dust that we are observing forms in this catastrophic wind. And so one of the consequences of that is that we can't see the star. Uh, the star is smoking cigars, and the star is just disappearing from view. But luckily, we have a telescope now in space that can see just this dust. It sees the radiation from the dust rather than the radiation from the star. And that's what we have observed. This telescope that we used is a Spitzer Space Telescope. It is one of NASA's uh, great space observatories, one of the four, in fact. And it's been in space since about five years now, and it is just about to end its life. Mm. And space telescope observing infrared radiation needs to be cooled. It's cooled by, uh, by liquid helium, um, but that evaporates while it cools, and after a while it's gone. This telescope is now very far from Earth, and you can't refill it. Uh, the best estimate for when it will run out is April, so pretty soon from now. We've been using this telescope for some time to observe galaxies like this one and looking for the stars that are losing mass. This is by far the most metal-poor that we have found. And so the fact that we saw dust form in such a metal-poor environment was uh, rather unexpected and rather interesting. So using the Spitzer Space Telescope, you can measure the lights coming from the dust surrounding the star, but you mentioned that you now know that it has very few metals as constituents in the dust. How do you know that? We know that, first of all, because the star is a member of this galaxy, and all the stars in this galaxy are like that. And so that tells us that this star is unlikely to be different. Uh, The second reason is, in the dust itself, we're taking spectra in the infrared. In the optical, this star is not visible. It's hiding behind its own dust. Um, but what the Spitzer Space Telescope does, what we have done with it, is indeed take spectra of the emission. So we can see um, not only that it emits infrared radiation from dust, it also tells us what kind of dust. 
I mean, there's some features you sometimes can see that comes from other elements embedded in the dust. And the most important one in this case is silicate carbide. Uh, if you see that, there's one particular feature at a wavelength of 11 micron, if you're interested, uh, that shows the presence of this uh, material. That uh, feature is completely absent in this star. Now, silicon is not made in these type of, uh, of evolved stars. And so that really tells you what abundances there were when the star first formed. And it tells you that is really, this is a very metal poor star. And there are some, uh, some things that uh, surprised us. One of the dust is very hot. It is over 1500 Kelvin, which is much hotter than any dust ever seen in our galaxy. And it is completely absent, completely lacking in silicate carbide. And there is only uh, carbonaceous dust suit. Because it's so hot, we believe it's graphite, which is a dust component not often seen in our galaxy. If this dust is surrounding a star, is it so surprising that it is hot? In a way, it isn't. It's being heated. But dust can only exist at a temperature below a certain value, the, the, the evaporation or the condensation temperature. If you make it too hot, it will melt. But in space, it can't melt. It will just evaporate. And so just from the fact you see the dust, it has to be cool enough to exist. And most dust cannot exist at temperatures as high as this. So that was a surprise. But graphite can exist. So that was okay. What are we going to learn from this system? Why is it special to us? Why should we want to know about this star which is shedding all its atmosphere and it's surrounded by this big dust shell? Well, to an astronomer, the very interesting bit is that this tells us something what went on in the early universe. We have seen dust in the early universe, but we've never seen it form. The, uh, the earliest dust in the universe... Uh, is at a redshift of over six. It means it is uh, less than a billion years after the Big Bang, there was already dust there. And we don't really know where it came from. The idea was it was mainly made by supernova. Now, we have found this star and have shown that even lower mass stars, like the Sun, can make dust in this kind of environment. And so it shows a new source of this very high redshift dust. That is the interest for astronomers. Now, the interest for us as uh, normal human beings is somewhat different because to form a planet like the Earth you need dust. You cannot make it out of hydrogen and helium. You can only make it out of these small, dusty particles in space. You bring them together, they grow bigger and bigger, and finally you've got a planet. And so this tells us also something about the origin of our planet. We assume that everything that we're made out of, you, me, this table, this microphone, is all made out of recycled stellar matter through the action of supernovae producing heavier elements and recycling them to the universe. So does this change our understanding of how the universe goes about its formation of, of, of different atoms and, and molecules? We know fairly well how the various elements form. We know what type of star creates what kind of elements. Things like the silicate and the oxygen, the, the sand on the, on the beach, are formed in supernovae. But things like the carbon that uh, you and I are more made out of is mainly made in the lower mass stars, like the sun. But only if those stars are at an, uh, a low metallicity, so metal poor. The interesting thing is the more metal-rich, so the older the universe gets, the less carbon is formed in these kind of stars, or the less efficient it comes out. And so a lot of the carbon that we are made of is actually quite old, and comes from an earlier phase in the evolution of the galaxy. Now, we don't really understand the early phases of the evolution of galaxies. Uh, the formation we don't understand anything about. After that, the evolution, how the, the galaxy develops itself, well, that is an, uh, a big interplay between st stars form, they evolve, they lose mass and rich to a material that is produced themselves, and then they form new generations of stars out of that. It's a life cycle of galaxies. Uh, that life cycle we don't really understand. And this, uh, 
data that we've uh, taken, these spectra, show us something quite fundamental about this life cycle of galaxies. Out of the millions of stars that you could possibly observe in the galaxy and other galaxies, how did you find this one? That is a very good question. And the lucky thing is we didn't. It was found for us. There was a uh, group in, uh, in France, Nicolas Moron mainly, who were doing surveys for these type of stars in the galactic halo. So that's the galactic stars, um, but they're in an old component of the galaxy. And they found about 50 or 60 or so of these type of stars. Now for this star, they hadn't realized it was actually a member of a more distant galaxy. And so they found it accidental. Um, our team realized that actually it belonged to this more distant galaxy. And therefore we knew it was a very low metallicity star. And so it was found for us, luckily. Are you aiming to extend this research by finding other similar stars and do the same sort of analysis? We would love to. It's getting more difficult because the Spitzer Space Telescope is dying. And so we have just been awarded a little bit more time to look at uh, more of Nicolas Moron's stars in the halo. And hopefully there are more interesting stars in there. We've got other projects looking at similar stars in globular clusters, which also date from a very early phase of the evolution of our galaxy. Um, those data are still being analysed and we hope to uh, get some exciting new results, but not this week. Well, that's fascinating research. Thank you very much indeed for taking the time to talk to us on the Jodcast. It was a pleasure. So there you have it. Fascinating research from Albert there from Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics. And if you want to learn more, you can do so by going to the Jodrell Bank Observatory homepage and looking at the latest research. There's a press release there which goes into a little bit more detail, lots of images and links to other sites. And with that, we get to the point in the show where you can send in your questions, which we put to an astronomer, in this case, Dr. Tim O'Brien. So here's Nick talking to Tim to get the answers to your questions. And it's Ask an Astronomer time with Dr. Tim O'Brien. And now we have a question from Paul Ramsden, and he says that I am in North Manchester, England, and every night this week I have noticed a bright object in the western sky looking up at an angle of about 30 degrees. What is it? Now we have similar questions from Linda Ross, Kevin... And Edward Gallagher. Yeah, so in fact, we got this same question from uh, from we got this same question from many different people actually. Um, and of course, uh, the answer is it's the planet Venus. It's particularly spectacular in the in the evening skies. You can see it when the sky starts to go dark um, on into the evenings. Uh, from from here, set in about nine p.m. ish, nine thirty p.m. ish. Um, I mean, one of the interesting things about that is actually that. Uh, uh, if you get a chance to have a look at it, of course it's shining by light reflected from the sun, I should say. So in fact it looks like a star. To the naked eye it looks like the brightest star in the sky. Of course the difference between stars and planets is that stars generate their own energy through nuclear fusion at the core, and what that planet Venus is doing is just reflecting the light from the sun. Um, so that's that's the first important point to make. And then another sort of interesting aspect is that... Um, uh, if you take a look through a small telescope uh, at Venus, if you can get your hands on one, um, you'll see that it's got a phase like the moon. So in fact, I looked at it just the other week. It's got a half, it's like a half moon. So it's actually lit by the sun from the side. Um, so you see sort of half of it lit. And, you know, this year's, as we've mentioned many times on the Jodcast, I'm sure so far, this is the International Year of Astronomy. It's 400 years since Galileo used his telescope to look at, people are aware of him looking at Jupiter and seeing the moon, the Galilean satellites of Jupiter, but he also looked at Venus and in fact he, he, he made uh, sketches of the phases of Venus um, where he saw this phase change as Venus orbits the sun and he also noticed that you know when it was uh, a full 
phase it was uh it was uh you know like a full moon basically uh it was at it appeared at its smallest and when it was a sort of crescent phase um it appeared at its largest uh and the interpretation of that of course is that it's orbiting the sun between us and the sun and you know when it goes around the other side of the sun it's it's lit from the it's lit in a full phase and when it's closer to us and therefore appears larger it's lit as a crescent so it's quite interesting you can see that yourself with a with a telescope Oh, thanks for that. And um, if people are wondering what that bright thing up in the sky is, how is it best for them to find out themselves? Other than emailing the Jodcast, you mean? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so, in fact, uh, probably one of the easiest things is to go and download some software like Stellarium. We quite like Stellarium. It's free. It's uh, quite pretty. Um, www.stellarium.org. Uh, download that software, it will tell you what the night sky looks like um, from your location on Earth and at any time. Very good, thanks for that. Next question from John, and he writes, My son asked me a question the other day that I couldn't answer, so I thought I would ask, ask an astronomer. He asked me, When using a powerful telescope to see stars and galaxies, as we know the light takes many millions of years to reach us, so would it be possible to see our own galaxy, but in the distant past, and would we recognize it? Ah, a good question. Um, yeah, I mean, it's you're right. I mean, one of the issues, one of the interesting things about astronomy is that the the farther away we look in space, the farther back in time we're looking, um, because the light's travelling at a finite speed, three hundred thousand kilometres a second, quite fast, but still not infinite. So even if you look at the sun, you're seeing it as it was eight minutes ago. Um, when you look at the moon, you're seeing it as it was one and a quarter seconds ago. That's how long it takes light to travel that. Uh, 380,000 kilometers from the moon. Um, but when we look at even the nearest star, um, the light takes about four and a half years to get to us. Um, so we're seeing it as it was four and a half years ago. So the question is, if we were to look, in effect, we're looking back in time, can we look back in time and see our own galaxy? Well, generally, it's, the answer is no. Um, we, 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 we are sitting in our own galaxy. So if we look out into space and we look farther back in time, we're looking farther and farther away from our galaxy. Um, back in time. So we're seeing other galaxies as they were many millions and indeed billions of years ago, but not our own galaxy. Um, the only caveat to that question is that whether there might be some exotic curvature of space um, which might lead to the universe effectively being folded back in on itself. So you might actually be able to see sort of multiple images of uh, of, of things on the other on one side of the sky from the you know you look in one direction on one side of the sky and you see things um, in the same direction on the other side of the sky. Um, but I think that's probably probably going too far for the, for the Jodcast at the moment. I think the basic answer is no, we don't see ourselves back in time. And our next question comes from Mike Van Voren, who asks, how much of the known universe is empty? Okay, um, again, uh, an, in, an interesting question. Um, I think probably the way to think about this is, is first of all, to say that, um, that the universe is, is, there's no part of the universe that's empty. First of all, um, matter does uh, extend through the whole of the universe. What, what really, I guess, we can talk about is what the density of the universe is. So, um, in other words, for example, you know, take a take a glass of water or something. The density of that water is is about, is one gram per cubic centimeter. So, in a in a in a, in a box, one centimeter by one centimeter by one centimeter of water, and you weighed that, that would weigh um, that would basically weigh a gram. Um, so we can ask that question. We can say, okay, well, what's the average density of the Earth? 
the planet, the Earth, um, that's about five grams per cubic centimeter. Um, so it's sort of rock. It's basically a bit, you can imagine, a bit heavier than water. Um, if you then say, okay, well, you know, planets are one constituent of the universe, sure, but but stars are also another major constituent. We can say, well, what's the average density of a star like the Sun? Um, and the average density of the Sun is about 1.4 grams per cubic centimetre, so somewhat less than the Earth, as you might imagine. Of course, it varies. In the middle of the Sun, it's much greater than that. Towards the outer edges, it's much less. But its average density is about 1.4 times that of water, about 1.4 grams per cubic centimetre. You know, there's there's space between the, the sun and the planets, and in fact that is filled with stuff. Um, much, 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 much lower density though. Um, the density of the, the medium between the planets, the interplanetary medium, um, is about five particles per cubic centimetre, where a particle is basically a sort of uh, hydrogen atom, let's say. Um, now that turns out to be about something like uh, 10 to the minus 24 grams per cubic centimetre. That that sort of density of uh, of the of the stuff between the between the stars and between the between the planets, um, ten to the minus twenty four. That's an incredibly small number. So like ten to the minus three would be zero point zero zero one. So ten to the minus twenty four is zero point twenty three zeros and a one grams per cubic centimetre. So in other words, ten to the power twenty four times less dense than water. So what's that? That's a million 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 times lower density than water um, but it's not empty the stuff there we see it we can pick it up with radio telescopes we can see it with various other types of telescopes so um, so I think it's fair to say that the universe is not empty now I mean one other way of looking at it is that uh, is to look at the average separation of stars and you think okay people think about stars like filling the sky but of course there's massive gaps between stars and in our uh, in our galaxy you know the average separation of stars is around about a light year you know of, of order a light year now a light year is quite a long way it's actually um almost 10 to the power 18 um centimeters so that's sort of uh that's that's a one followed by 18 zeros uh it's a big number um and if you say well how much space does a does a star occupy you're thinking about the sun sitting at the center of a box an absolutely huge box. The va vast amount of that box is just filled with the stuff between the stars. The star occupies, occupies a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of that space. Um, so, you know, when we think about galaxies colliding, we, you know, you think about actually it's just mostly, em largely <laughs> low density empty space that's colliding and the stars basically miss each other. So I think the answer, how much of the known universe, known universe is empty? Well, the answer is, you know, as far as we can see, none of the known universe is empty. It's all got something in it. It's just a question of degree and the density. Well, there you go. Thank you very much indeed for all those excellent questions coming in. If you have a question about astronomy, astrophysics or cosmology, do send it to us at the Jodcast at www.jodcast.net and we'll get Dr. Tim O'Brien to once again answer your question. So many thanks again, Tim. Okay, thanks, Nick. Thanks for that, Nick and Tim. Now, as we said back on the February edition of the Jodcast, the Hubble Space Telescope are giving us all a special chance to vote on what they next observe. They have six different objects which are up for the public vote, and you can go to the website, youdecide.hubblesite.org, and you can cast your vote there. And that will be observed in time for the 100 Hours of Astronomy Global Event, which takes place at the beginning of April. And we'll have a bit more on that in the March edition of the Jodcast. 
And now we move to your feedback. Thank you to everybody who has sent in their feedback through the variety of channels that we have available for you to tell us about how you think the Jodcast is doing. Stuart, first of all, you are down in London for AstroFest. I was. This was a chance to get feedback in a non-virtual way by actually standing and talking to people. So we met quite a few Jodcast listeners. Hello to all of those people who came and said hello. I'm afraid I've forgotten most of the names. I met quite a few people that day. But I do remember... One person, I think his name was Richard, who has he deserves a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Jodcast. He only started listening recently, and started from January 2006, and has been working his way through. And he's covered about two years' worth of the Jodcast in only about three or four weeks, while helping to feed his young baby in the middle of the night. So thanks to all those people who popped by on AstroFest. And over on iTunes, thank you to AP Carty for giving us a review on the UK iTunes store. Remember, if you have iTunes and haven't yet given us a review please do go into the iTunes store and give the Jodcast a review. To email now, and thank you to everybody who has sent in their feedback via email. Many thanks to Tony Smith, Julian Osborne, Michael Booth, and from Mike Van Voren, who, amongst other comments in his email, mentions that Tekapo, a little town in the centre of the South Island of New Zealand, wants to be the first Starlight Reserve, a UNESCO project to conserve the dark skies around the world. Tekapo is the closest settlement to the Mount John University Observatory, which is the home of, amongst other telescopes, the Microlensing Observations and Astrophysics Telescope, which conducts surveys towards the centre of the galaxy, looking for microlensing events, looking for extrasolar planets. And we also had a sound-seeing tour of Mount John back in 2006 on the Jodcast. So if anyone wants to hear what it sounds like to be on top of Mount John, then go and listen to, I think it was the April edition of the Jodcast then. Very good. Thank you very much again to all those who have sent in their emails. Now, there is an interesting post on the Jodcast forum posted by Stuart about me. I'm not going to discuss it here. I invite you all to go to the Jodcast forum, log on, and read the post. And remember, as well as the forum at forum.jodcast.net, you can also follow us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. And you can watch our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash jodcast. That's all from us for this edition of the Jodcast. Thank you very much indeed for listening. Please do send us your feedback through the variety of means that we've got for you. We do enjoy hearing your feedback and letting us know how we're doing with the Jodcast and how we can improve. We'll have more interviews, news, and what you can see in the night sky for the March edition of the Jodcast coming up in a couple of weeks. So until then, thanks for listening. Goodbye and Jod on. <laughs>